Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show, here on True North on this Wednesday, February 22nd, 2023, coming to the end of the shortest month of the year, which is a little bit of month-by-month trivia. Some months have 30 days, others have 31, and February only has, I believe, four, uh, or so it's felt like in this uh, little February here. But we uh, nevertheless proceed, and it's been a surprisingly busy news week for a short week that was a holiday in much of the country. Uh, And we'll talk Talk about China. We'll also talk about the story that I, I've seen virtually no media coverage of, besides uh, one write-up initially in the Toronto Star, which again, there's nothing wrong with it. They they did in fact cover it, but uh, I would say that the media has not picked this up, and even people you'd expect to focus on this haven't really been. Uh, and that is the story of a man who was uh, charged. He's been criminally charged with second-degree murder after shooting a home invader that uh, broke into the house that he and his mother were sleeping in overnight with a firearm. He shot the intruder dead, and now he's the one who's been charged with second-degree murder. So we are going to talk about that and a lot of other things on this program, but let's start off with China, which has been the gift that keeps on giving as far as news coverage. The Globe and Mail has done a bang-up job on this. They had this bombshell on their front page, an A1 story on Friday, talking about the lengths through which the Chinese regime, the Chinese Communist Party, went to interfere in Canada's elections, specifically the 2021 election. In this story, they cite a CSIS document that was given to them uh, privately, that was leaked to them, that deployed a sophisticated strategy by China to disrupt Canada's democracy in the 2021 election campaign. And China was backing Justin Trudeau. I think that's something you very much need to understand. That's a key part of the story, that China wanted Justin Trudeau to win. Now, is this because Justin Trudeau is a Chinese puppet? I don't think so. I think it's that Justin Trudeau is a puppet of a leader in general, and China looks at him and says, that's the kind of guy we want going up against us. And the contrary was Aaron O'Toole, who, whatever you think of Aaron O'Toole, and there are a great many criticisms I've leveled about his policies and his leadership, one issue on which he was unflinching was China. Aaron O'Toole understood China, he understood the dynamics, he understood foreign policy, and China was clearly intimidated by that and didn't want Aaron O'Toole to win, so they worked against uh, conservative MPs in general. They specifically worked against some MPs that were like uh, Kenny Chu, formerly an MP in British Columbia that were especially critical of the Chinese regime. And all of this was to the benefit of Justin Trudeau. So this is part of an intelligence operation that China ran that has been known to Canadian intelligence. Canadian officials knew about it. Canadian uh, The Canadian Security Intelligence Service knew about it. And what happened there was they informed the Liberal government, who even with this information has been publicly downplaying the idea that there is an interference issue. They've been publicly downplaying the idea that this was at all something we need to worry about. They mocked critics who tried to bring this up uh, and as though they were trying to generate or concoct some sort of boogeyman. And it, it was particularly offensive to anyone who looked at just the facts. You didn't need to be an intelligence official 
to see this was going on. When the liberals had the audacity to just downplay that this was a thing at all, to say, oh, well, and even when they eventually came around to it, their line seemed to be, well, you know, there might have been an issue. They might have been trying to influence, but they really didn't do a good job at it. It didn't work. And all of this is to say that they refuse to accept there is an issue. They refuse to acknowledge the extent of the issue. And I think the elephant in the room here is that it was the liberal government that was benefiting from it. So there really isn't an incentive for the liberals to get to the bottom of a, an election that may have been an illegal, well, that was an illegally interfered with election when we, they were the ones who were beneficiaries. Now, I should say, I do not have any evidence to suggest that if China's interference had not been there, the election result would have been different. I am not making that claim. The Globe and Mail's reporting is not making that claim. But we'd be remiss to not point out that it is a minority parliament. And it, Justin Trudeau didn't win the popular vote despite winning the most seats. Small changes in one or two ridings could have made a difference in the overall landscape politically. Uh, really small changes in a number of ridings in tight races could have made a significant difference. But we know there were a handful of races in particular that the Chinese regime was targeting, ones that they thought needed to be the choke points or were the weak links. So if you look at the facts here, CSIS were CSIS reports on this were shared with Canada's intelligence partners in the so-called Five Eyes community. So these are the governments of the United States, Britain, Australia, and New Zealand and Canada. Now, of those five, New Zealand is absolutely a Chinese puppet. New Zealand has been a, a pathetic and shameful shill for the Chinese regime when it comes to foreign policy. But Australia, the US, and the UK have actually been quite strong on this. So it's no surprise that those three created a separate alliance that has been somewhat facetiously called the Three Eyes Alliance, it's formerly AUKUS, that cut out Canada and cut out New Zealand. So I think it's very telling that these intelligence, uh, these, these nations that have significant intelligence operations don't trust Canada. So what they saw is an intelligence report from Canada that suggests the election was being interfered with. And then they also saw public comments from Justin Trudeau saying, oh, there's no election interference. What are you talking about? There's no big deal. Democracy is protected in Canada. And that's actually not the case. So let's talk about today how Justin Trudeau made this problem so much worse because he gets up, well, it starts off with Jennifer O'Connell, who's a liberal member of parliament, who decides to take the approach that the left loves, which is accusing anyone they don't like of being Trump-like. This was her comment in, House, in the House of Commons the other day. The information that has been reported in the media is extremely serious, but it's something that has never been denied by the fact that these reports have been tabled in the House of Commons. This is sadly not new information. The only thing that's new is the conservatives, I guess, are not happy with the other business that PROC is doing. And they simply want to only talk about this because they have one candidate in particular that they feel this has been affected by. But foreign interference isn't about one candidate or 11 candidates. It's about, it's about Canadian institutions. And this is the same Trump-type tactics 
to question election results moving forward. When I mentioned earlier that Justin Trudeau was not a Chinese puppet, but he was someone that uh, the Chinese government clearly thought uh, would be preferable to the alternatives. I, I should tell you about this term that uh, came up in the Soviet era called a useful idiot. Now, a useful idiot, and I'm reading the Wikipedia definition here, a term currently used to reference a person perceived as propagandizing for a cause without fully comprehending the cause's goal and who is cynically being used as the cause's leader. Talking about uh, neo-communists that were uh, particularly susceptible to communist propaganda manipulation in the Cold War. That was the, the origin of the term. But when I hear Jennifer O'Connell speak about that and say that it is Trump style to talk about electoral interference and the conservatives shouldn't be raising this, I, I think useful idiot. I, I mean, I think idiot, first off. Uh, useful might be a bit of a stretch, but I think of the term useful idiot. And I, I don't like being unkind to people. And I really don't like making comments like that on a show that I feel strives for some level of, of intellectual heft. Not always do we reach it, but we strive for it. Uh, but how else are you to parse someone that has just such a blind spot for such a big problem and says, well, the conservatives only want to talk about it because they're mad about it, but it's not about them. It's about democracy. Uh, but if the conservatives bring it up, no, you're undermining democracy. Th th then we have Justin Trudeau taking that point, that perspective that Jennifer O'Connell puts forward and just running it across into the end zone today. Take a look. Foreign governments and foreign actors are trying to undermine people's confidence in democracy itself and amplifying and giving reason, giving partisan reasons uh, to mistrust the outcome of an election, mistrust the experts at Elections Canada and in our, our security services and our uh, top public servants who are saying that the election integrity held. That's something that uh, we've seen from elsewhere is not a good path to go down for society or for democracy. Okay, so just to make sure I understand this, uh, democracy is important. Okay, we can all agree on that. Undermining democracy is uh, ergo a bad thing. Okay, we can all agree on that. When China undermines democracy, we're to believe that's a bad thing. But if the conservatives talk about China, undermining democracy, then they're the ones undermining democracy because people's faith in democracy is shaken. Okay. So Justin Trudeau is more concerned about conservatives talking about this than he is concerned about the thing that conservatives want to talk about, which again, I remind you, was to Justin Trudeau's benefit. So they're not even trying anymore. They're not even trying to conceal that they just don't seem to care. When they're talking about something very specific and very concrete, where there's a, a very tangible effect, we have facts, we have reports from intelligence agencies. They're talking about it in the abstract. They're talking about it in generalities, in this esoteric way, as if to say, oh, yes, you know, in general interview. Well, no, let's talk about the specifics. Let's talk about the specifics of China trying to manipulate a certain outcome in Canada's elections. And China tries to do this all over the world. Canada is not special, but all we're concerned about here is Canada's elections, the integrity of Canada's democracy. 
And by the way, the liberals who are getting all pearl clutchy right now at complaints of Chinese interference would have been the first ones to jump up and down and say, oh, Trump was influenced by Russia. Oh, the Freedom Convoy in Canada was a, a Russian psyop. I mean, these are the people that would absolutely call their political opponents uh, foreign influencees without hesitation. But when it comes to concrete, tangible evidence of interference in Canada's elections by the Chinese regime, they do not want to talk about it. And then they start uh, delegitimizing and denigrating those who dare talk about it. And I mentioned Aaron O'Toole a few moments ago, and, and I have a number of criticisms with how Aaron O'Toole handled his time as conservative leader, but he was a very strong voice on China. He kept that up through to the election, and it was clear that China didn't want that around. So the reason these discussions are important to have is because we are going to have another election at some point, whether it's this year or next year, or I suspect given the fecklessness of the NDP in like 2037, when uh, they finally decide to just move on from this, uh, but uh, the NDP that is, but what's happening is the NDP also don't particularly care about this, it seems, because I think some of them probably have the posters of Mao up in their offices, uh, probably a couple of them. But uh, if we look at this, it's only the conservatives that are really talking about China. And, and even then, I would say they could probably talk about it a lot more. It's a very important issue. It is a, a country that is going to be uh, striving for and is striving for global domination, and it's unfortunate that so few people realize what's happening, whether it's the uh, Belt and Road Initiative in which China is economically colonizing the uh, less developed world with a, this trillion dollar plan where they have new ports and airports popping up in places like, oh, Barbados and uh, Eastern Europe that are all Chinese owned. And then also other dimensions of this that are, I think, incredibly significant for people to be talking about. I mean, the, the way that China is the link between the very worst countries of the world and their aspirations, China and Iran, China and North Korea, China and Russia. So China is not just this uh, emerging member of the liberal order, like uh, Chairman Xi Jinping tries to claim whenever he's uh, speaking at the World Economic Forum or whatever. China, uh, I mean, to say nothing of the demand for justice that we need to be seeing from Western leaders about what China has done to the world in the last three years, uh, we should also be very concerned about what China is continuing to do to the world. And we're all looking up at you know the spy balloon flying over, and it takes a week for the United States to shoot the thing out of the air. Meanwhile, let's look at the ballot boxes where no world leader wants to shoot China's influence out of the ballot boxes metaphorically. So all of this is to say that right now we are in the midst of this tremendous global geopolitical gaslighting where China is incredibly transparent about what it wants. China is very open about what it wants. China does not hide the fact that it strives for this level of economic and political control over parts of the world. And they often be, are able to do this with relative impunity. And, you know, it used to be that interfering in a country's elections would be a very significant thing. It, I, it is a very significant thing, but it used to be that it would be treated as such. And I, I don't want to say the media has not focused on that. I mean, that clip I played a moment ago from Justin Trudeau, he was being asked about this by a reporter. Clearly, it is uh, something that is uh, being handled in some sense, but it, it's not permeating 
through the political discourse in the way that it should. I mean, here was a, a Michael Cooper, who's going to be on the show in a moment, um, a conservative member of parliament, accusing Trudeau of avoiding answering questions. And I, I think he's bang on if you listen to what he's saying. The prime minister, again, using carefully crafted words, talks about how the last two elections were not compromised, as if to say that anyone is alleging that those elections were compromised. That's, that's a very different question than what appears to have happened, which was interference targeting certain ridings and certain candidates. The fact that the overall result of an election was not compromised does not negate the fact that there are serious issues of interference that may have had an impact on the outcome of the election in certain writings. I, I think that's the point here. We're not actually making a claim that Justin Trudeau would have been out and Aaron O'Toole would have been in. And there were a number of other things in that election that were driving voters than Chinese influence. So again, I don't want you to misunderstand my point here. But I, I think it is also very important that the idea of influence and the concrete examples that it's happening are part of the problem. They are the problem, regardless of how successful it was. So Justin Trudeau's approach has historically been, well, you know, it didn't work, so it's not a big deal. We can just move on from it. Uh, Stephanie Levitz at the Toronto Star had a, a great piece uh, this week, uh, or today, actually, I think it came out, or maybe last night, about how conservatives debated going public with the election misinformation and election influence uh, warnings in 2021, specifically uh, infl information that was uh, spreading within the Chinese diaspora in Canada, uh, targeting conservative candidates that had been critical of China. And they instead sent it to the um, they instead sent it to the intelligence officials. So they didn't decide for whatever reason to make a public stink about this. Maybe that wasn't their strategy. That wasn't the uh, direction that we thought we were uh, going to head as a party was effectively what they were saying. Uh, but it sounds like just reading through what uh, Stephanie Levitz wrote here, uh, that the conservatives were seeing this happening in real time. And they had the choice of how they should do it. And, and their internal deliberations uh, were basically that they didn't want to raise this issue and then have it blow back on them to look like, I don't know, they were race baiting or something to look like they were being uh, sore losers, whatever the case is. And if you read through some of it, so that she has uh, Stephanie Levitt's internal conservative memos, which had examples of some of the Chinese language materials that were spreading in the election, uh, misinformation about Mo O'Toole, misinformation about the conservatives. Uh, some of these apps, there's an app called WeChat which, uh, believe it or not, when I ran for office in 2018, I used WeChat because we had a, a large number of volunteers on my campaign who were of, of Chinese origin that were uh, very critical of the regime. They loved democracy. They loved Canada. Uh, they wanted to contribute. And WeChat is the app that the Chinese community uses in Canada and in China. Now, of course, I deleted WeChat the second the election was over because I did a little bit more reading into it and found that you know China was probably looking at all of my messages. So they may have a, an Andrew Lawton brochure or two that they've been intercepted in which I, I say have at it. Um, but on WeChat in these groups, it's like Telegram basically, uh, they were seeing all of this information spread in the Chinese language and presumably Mandarin, maybe Cantonese about the conservatives. And it just wasn't true. 
it just wasn't true what what was being said here. Um, and O'Toole said he would ban WeChat. So, uh, you know, clearly, if you're communicating on WeChat, you might not like the conservative leader that's saying he's going to ban that app. Um, and what was also happening is that uh, he had a hawkish stance in general on the Chinese regime. And I, I think that what was interesting is that they all tried to draw a comparison uh, in these groups, the people that were critical of O'Toole between O'Toole and Trump, which I find to be hilarious because there are probably a lot of Trump fans that are saying, well, I wish O'Toole were, were more like Trump. But um, so, so some of this stuff is political discourse. It's not misinformation. But uh, but other parts of this were and, and certainly the, the campaign that was uh, going after Kenny Chu, I think, was a very significant one that people needed to pay attention to. So all of this is to say that this is an issue in Canada that you'd be foolish to not take very seriously. And, and by that, I do not just mean uh, China's influence in the 2021 election, but China's influence in the 2025 election, China's influence in Canadian institutions between elections, China's influence uh, more broadly in Canada and on the world stage. And it, it's offensive to me and should be offensive to anyone else who loves liberty and loves Canada, that this is an issue that seems to attract so little interest from people that should be very passionate and dedicated about it. So what I'm going to do, and we're, we're going to have to move on from this. I, I, I'm Fortunately, I'm being told we've been having some technical issues getting uh, Michael Cooper, the member of Parliament Connected, which is incredibly disappointing because I love Michael Cooper. And the last time I saw him uh, was actually in Albania, where uh, one always runs into conservative members of parliament, but he was there with a delegation for a conference uh, that I was covering. And I was hoping to reconnect with him, not in Albania, uh, but uh, this is not necessarily happening right now. We're going to try to get him on in just a moment uh, for a few minutes before we go on to our, our next guest who is uh, standing by. But uh, one thing I, I will just say in closing on the China issue is that we are going through a tremendous turn of, I think, public attention right now. You, you see the whiplash, and I was actually glad to see the balloon issue in this country and in the world pop up, because, no pun intended, popping, never mind. Uh, but the reason is because it showed just how fickle people is. Like, at a certain point, so if I mention balloon now, you're probably like, oh yeah, there was the, the balloon, yeah, the balloon thing. But, but, you know, again, for a week, everyone's looking at it and nowhere else. And then, you know, you pass a week and people are talking about something else. And then next week, they'll be talking about something else. Remember Coney 2012? Remember when that was the big moral panic 11 years ago? So we all look at the balloon and then we move on. And no one actually cares about why the balloon was there, what China was doing, uh, what China continues to do. And this is why this stuff cannot be a flash in the pan. But you need leaders and media figures who are going to keep up the pressure on this. So I don't expect all of us to be the ones who solve this problem, but we can certainly... Uh, point it to the people who are supposed to. Uh, my sincere apologies to uh, Michael Cooper for the issues here, but we're going to uh, try to get him on uh, any moment now, or not today, but in, in general, when we can uh, get our get our uh, system functioning. Maybe China is on the system. Maybe uh, China is uh, taking over the Andrew Lawton show. So uh, we're not getting any sponsorship money from them, I assure you. Let's talk about this story out of Milton, Ontario, which uh, is... 
very troubling. And I, I always have to put an asterisk here because sometimes you learn more facts about these cases later on uh, that, that change your perception. So I'm going on uh, an issue here that is very much focused on a limited set of information. But I think there's a fair bit of detail here to draw a conclusion about something that's happened that I, I find to be very concerning. Uh, to go back to this uh, night of February 19th, uh, specifically 5 a.m., February 19th, a group of suspects, the Halton police say, approached a house in Milton, Ontario, with the intent of committing a robbery. They entered the residence. At least one of them had a firearm with them. And when they entered, they were confronted by a resident of the house who had a firearm. Now, this person's lawyer says it was a registered gun, which he used to shoot the intruder. It was him and his mother that were home. The people that break, broke in, allegedly, uh, at least one of them is facing charges of break and enter, as well as unauthorized possession of a firearm. But the man who is who lived in that house, who took a gun out to shoot the intruders, has been charged with second-degree murder. This is not an outlier. There have been a number of cases in Canada where people have used firearms in self-defense, which is legal, yet have still faced charges, even if they end up getting exonerated from the charges that takes years. They lose their firearms. They use their, fire, uh, their firearms license. They have to spend a huge amount of money uh, in legal fees. And they do this well. Uh, they are, in some cases, being treated more seriously than the criminals that they were responding to were. So we'll talk about the specifics of the case, but I also want to talk in general terms about self-defense. Your lawyer, Sam Goldstein, is with me now. Sam, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Oh, you're welcome. It's good to talk to you and see you again, Andrew. I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, I I'm am uh, not hearing you, Sam. I just... That was on my end. Oh, you're, oh, you're okay. in the clear here. <laughs> I was paranoid we were having another yeah. uh, Michael Cooper issue, and then I would have blamed the, uh, the Chinese government. But uh, thank you for, for joining. Let's first just explain to me in the clearest possible terms, what is the law in Canada about using a firearm in self-defense? Yeah, well, um, and simply, simply put, I mean, you are, you're able to use a reasonable amount of force to protect uh, a loved one, your property, yourself. And uh, that up to the point of lethal force. I mean, that, it, it, that's as simple as I could put it. It's all about the, you know, the, the real black boxes in, the reason, in all the circumstances and what's reasonable. That's the real issue here. And from what you told me, and you know, I was reading the story earlier and I didn't see the fact that one of the intruders or maybe even more than one intruder had a firearm themselves. I just saw that they had broken into the house. Well, and, I should say they've been charged with unauthorized possession of a firearm. So that's right. what I was drawing that from. Right. So if they had a firearm, it, it, it seems to me it raises, um, you know, the circumstances a little bit more in favor of the uh, of the person who's being charged now. If someone's entering your home with a firearm, I guess it, to some extent it depends upon what they were doing with that firearm, right? But um, if they were certainly pointing at the individual and threatening the individual, or even let's go further, that they fired at the individual, it would seem that you have the right, you know, reasonable amount of force to protect yourself from firing back. 
Yeah, and, and I know that there, I mean, the famous case that a lot of people, uh, certainly for me, started uh, paying attention to this issue through the lens of was that one a few years ago in Port Colborne, where a guy fired warning shots because someone had uh, basically firebombed his house and, you know, they burned his dog's house down, and I think even singed his dog. Uh, he wasn't even shooting to injure anyone. And uh, this man is dragged through the ringer for years and years. Uh, there was a gentleman I interviewed when I did a documentary about firearms in Okotoks. Same idea. Someone's rummaging around his truck in the middle of the night. He takes his firearms out. He shoots around at the ground. Uh, it ricochets and hits one of the assailants. And then he's charged. And even though he's eventually exonerated, it's the process is the punishment here. So uh, what I find to be troubling is how we have something that is uh, carved out in law that you're allowed to do that doesn't seem to stop these people from having to really defend themselves against a charge. Well, I mean, let's just take, I appreciate your point, but I mean, let's just go back for a moment and look at a public policy perspective, right? You don't want to allow any person to just simply say, oh, well, they were coming into my house so I shot them. Right. I, I think you want the process to take place. And I understand the, the punishments, the process. Believe me, I'm a criminal lawyer. I understand that for my clients. But I think there I mean, I don't blame the, the police in this instance or for any instance when there's a firearm uh, being discharged. Right. To say, well, OK, I know that's what you have to say. And I know that I know it's kind of funny here because the guy's in your home with the firearm, you know, and it's smoking. and It seems like he's discharged it against you. But I think, you know, it makes some sense for the police to initially say, look, we're going to charge you and we're going to let the process determine what's the reasonable circumstances, right? Now, listen, you know, in this case, Andrew, let's just step back again for just a moment. And look, if this person was a lawful firearm owner, um, then it would have been, uh, it would have been, um, you know, there would have been locked away somewhere, right? And his ammunition would have been locked away somewhere. So it's a little bit suspicious to me, and I know nothing about the case other than what we've talked about is, if someone's coming into your home, I mean, did he really have enough time to go and unlock the ammunition and then unlock the firearm and load it, right, and take maybe the safety lock off? Uh, of the fire uh, yeah for, for a handgun I mean just so people understand the storage laws for a handgun uh, it has to be double locked basically so it has right. to be in a locked room or a locked case and then the firearm itself has to be locked and and there right. are people that practice this that could do that very very quickly but there have been cases I, I'm aware of where someone has done it and then police have said well there's no way you could have gotten it in time so we're gonna charge you with unsafe storage and, and stuff like that yeah, so right. so I agree but I, I guess my, my and, and I take you at your point I mean if if police walk into a house and you're holding a gun, there's a guy dead in front, you know, it would be very convenient if just saying, well, it was self-defense was just an automatic exoneration where there's no further um, action. But I, I, I don't know, is there a way that we could better enshrine this and, and better educate police about it? Because I, I think a lot of the times when you look at what charges are, I, I wonder if police necessarily know um, how you do have these rights to defend yourself in all these you know, contexts. So I think often in these self-defense type of um, uh, provisions of the criminal code, it, it's very hard to start trying to, like, to further narrowly define them. I think the fact that they're broad and they allow the discretion and really hand over that, you know, the reasonable circumstances, that black box to figure out what's inside or what's reasonable in the circumstances over to the court system rather than the police. I mean, I, I tend not to trust the police, so I don't know if really defining it further is really going to help you because help you, they may use it against you at the same time. 
But, you know, let's go to another point, if you don't mind, Andrew, let's, I mean, to, to take your conversation forward a little bit. And I think you have a really good point about the fact that when people get charged with this and the guy in Colbert, he then has to reapply for his, you know, to get his we mm -hmm. weapons back, right? And I see that in many cases where, you know, a common was domestic assault, where someone in the end is acquitted um, and they have to go through all these hoops to jump through to get their firearms back. The real issue, I mean, not the real issue, but the problem is that the police, once they try and get your firearm and once they get their hands on them, they don't want to give them back. And I think that's another issue that you're pointing out, and it's a really important one, right? That often what happens is you have to go through all types of applications, the court and so on, to try and get your arm, your firearms back when in the end you did nothing wrong. So, I mean, what is the what is the process supposed to be? Because what I would assume is that if your firearms are taken away from you in connection with charges, that the second you are no longer facing those charges, your firearms should just be automatically returned to your doorstep with a bow on them and perhaps not an apology card, but they should be back in your possession. Is that how it's supposed to be and it's just not functioning that way? Or is there actually in the regulations a more convoluted process for people to reclaim that property? Uh, well, another very good question, Andrew. I can see why you're an award-winning journalist. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, I'm, trying, you know, I'm very popular. I'm just having trouble getting the word out, but okay. carry on. Well, I mean, I, you know, I'm right now in a situation where my client had a firearm. He was charged with domestic assault. They took away his firearms. Uh, he's been acquitted. And despite the fact he's acquitted and this sort of 30-day appeal period is over where the police or the Crown has the right to keep the, you know, the, the, um, at least the the evidence, well, this wasn't evidence, I'm having a very hard time getting, getting the firearms back. Police officers doesn't want to return my calls, you know, so, you know, I've got to go to court and make some sort of application uh, to get the stuff back, and you can make phone calls up to the chief of police, people ignore you, so there isn't really a process, right? And, and to some extent, they could probably charge the police officer with theft himself because he's trying to convert it or, or, or trying to detain the release of it. But, you know, those types of things aren't really going to go anywhere. But it's a problem. There's nowhere in the criminal... It's not true. There, there, there are sections of the criminal code which will allow you to go and get exhibits back or, or evidence back. Uh, but it's mostly sort of uh, in documentary type of issues, not so much in real evidence. But it, it's a situation where there is a bit of a gray area. And where there's a gray area, the police aren't going to help you out. They're not, you're not, they're not your friends, Andrew. You can see the poster behind me, right? You see the police officer with the uh, half the smiley face and the wings, you know, and he comes across as being an angel. But the reality is, is if you look closer, he's got the, the gun, the handcuffs and so on. The, the police are not your friend. I, I, I have to just... I have, to, I have to push back against, I, I think, what that generalization. I, I think that, in general, law enforcement has a lot of problems. I, I, I don't like painting all police officers with that brush, and, and even all police services with that brush. I think, I think some are better than others, although this veers into a, a, a more philosophical discussion that we should have a, at another point, because I, I think it's an important one. But um, let me just ask, in general here, about where the change would be made. I mean, is this something that the federal government uh, could just pass a, a single line bill that says when you're acquitted of a charge or charges are withdrawn, your any property seized in connection with that is returned to you? Would that be enough? Yeah, I mean, in the criminal, I mean, the, the, certainly you could put in the criminal code, um, but I think it's actually more a provincial issue because the, you know, the, the local police are more falling underneath the province than, than the uh, federal government. But um, look, I, I, 
I haven't given a tremendous amount of thought. All I have is in many, in the 24, 25 years I practiced as a lawyer, I'm constantly coming, you know, coming against the problem of how to get my client's firearms back after they've been acquitted of their charges. So it's an ongoing issue, whether it, 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 whether it would be um, uh, an amendment in the criminal code federally, maybe. But the reality is, Andrew, is what party in Canada is going to amend the criminal code to allow an individual to get a firearm back? Well, exactly. I mean, theoretically, the conservatives uh, might, but I, I, I think they're more focused on just stopping the new regulations that are coming in now. I, I don't actually think there is a huge political appetite uh, when you start talking about anyone who's ever been charged with a, a crime in Canada, because it's not a group that on the surface is sympathetic. Even if uh, someone's been acquitted of charges or the charges were withdrawn, whatever the case is, um, and I think that you, you're right to point that out, that it, it's very difficult and you have people that fall through the cracks as a result. Yeah, yeah. But let me go back to your initial question now about the issue of this individual Milton man, right? Yeah. And I think you have another very good point, which is if these laws aren't somehow bolstered or supported um, uh, in the courts, right, then you get a bit of a, um, uh, what's the word, like a, a, a chill type of factor in terms of people who are defending themselves and they're wondering if they can lawfully defend themselves, then of course they may be injured uh, in, in an attack upon them, right? So you make a good point. Um, it's important that we have these laws and maybe it is important to some extent to try and um, uh, you know beef them up a little bit. Uh, I'm not a politician, so I don't necessarily have, know how to go about That's why that. we like you. <laughs> yeah, you know, but, uh, but you just ask questions, I just answer them. But, yeah. uh, you know, but I think, but again, to your point, it's an important point. I think there has to be some beefing up so people feel more uh, comfortable when they exercise their lawful right to defend themselves. Yeah, and, and I put that disclaimer at the beginning of this discussion for a reason, that I, I don't know the facts of the case. I've, I, you yeah. know, the police have released a certain set of information. And I would say just as a result, as, as a related point, that home invasions are very, very rare. I mean, home break-ins are common enough, but, but armed robbery is not a, a, a very common phenomenon. And, and when it happens, almost always, it's the house of someone that's known to the assailants, or it's the wrong house, but they were going after someone specific. So uh, you can read between the lines there and, and see that there may be additional context that police have that they haven't revealed. But I'm also very keenly aware of, of these cases in the past where people that were legitimately using firearm and self-defense ha have sure. been uh, charged, I would say, unfairly as a result. So we'll certainly follow this. Uh, Sam Goldstein, always a pleasure, sir. Thanks for coming on today. You're welcome. Good speaking to you. All right. Thank you. That does it for us for today. We will be back uh, on, we'll all be back on Friday with uh, Fake News Friday and then more of the Andrew Lawton Show next week. And Michael Cooper being a uh, true mensch, as my Jewish friends say, has kindly offered to come back. So he hasn't been uh, put off by uh, whatever technical, technical glitches befell this program. And we look forward to his return. That's all coming up next week on the Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.